0: and welcome everyone to episode 43 of the slow spin sidey podcast i am paul your usual co-host and with me as always is rob what's up rob
1: what's up what's poppin morning everyone i'm good how are you paul
0: Morning everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm good. Uh it's it's early morning here and for you too, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um today we're going to have like quite a special episode. You could call that episode, Klein versus canandel the ultimate fight for aluminium frame.
1: You could definitely call it that. This is going to be a good episode. I'm really pumped. Yeah.
0: But just before that, if you want to hear more about I mean, airplanes, airlines, airports, and everything that is flight-related, <laughs> uh, then you should listen to the pre-show. You can access the extended conversation at patreon.com slash podcast or by subscribing directly on Apple Podcast okay guys so today we're gonna go deep into a wild story about a track bike you absolutely all know you all know it for sure because we talk about it all the time and some other track bikes that you probably never heard about but are so important for history just general history and how did we come here if you ride an aluminium bike today well those bikes were the starting point of what you're riding today. This is the story of the birth of the aluminium bike, but also the one of Klein versus Cannondale and how one of the most recognizable and unique track bike of all time came to be. I'm, of course, talking about the Cannondale track. So, yeah, just to be clear, it is not the origin story of the Cannondale track, but. If the Cannondale track is here today, it is because of that story.
1: Okay, Uh, I'm going to quickly get into it and talk a little about the history of Cannondale. Um, The company was founded in 1971 by Joe Montgomery and Murdoch McGregor to manufacture precast concrete housing. And yes, that's why the first Cannondale logo was a house. Then... They started producing engines that could use ammonia as fuel for military purposes and had some surprising success with that. They made a ton of money with that and started reinvesting into the research of development of highly advanced air coolers with no moving parts. Not quite what I thought Cannondale was about originally, but very interesting to know.
0: Exactly. At the beginning, Candle was just making houses and air coolers yeah, and fuck? engines. Yeah. Absolutely no bikes. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so when Joe Montgomery went on to a camping trip with his son, um, they came back with the idea of a bicycle cargo trailer more advanced that was already available on the market. So they, add, they added stuff like a torsion spring to facilitate the handling of the charges was all their designs. Um, and then they designed the bags to fit perfectly on that trailer. So Joe Montgomery, Joe, is a perfectionist. So he wanted things to be perfect and he sourced every possible fabric to make perfect and durable bags for that special trailer.
1: So that's crazy. There must have just been not much around in terms of bike trailers and bike bags at that time. I mean, 1971. Yeah, crazy. So Yeah, it was really yeah. early on. Yeah, fascinating. So a trip to a bicycle show in New York was a huge eye-opener. The team were overwhelmed by dealers wanting to buy the bags. They bought the trailers, but they really just wanted the bags. In less than six months, Cannondale became the world's largest manufacturer of lightweight bicycle bags. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, Using a marketing plan devised by Montgomery, Cannondale swept across the UK, securing orders for more than two and a half thousand dealers in less than 20 months. (sighs) What the fuck?
0: Like 2,500 dealers in less than 20 months. And bicycle
1: bags, they started, they went from military. Um, construction engine, the engine to, <laughs> to bicycle bags in yeah, what the fuck?
0: Yeah, with an air cooler in between. Yeah, of, of course, <laughs> of course, of course. The logic, the you know, the, the logic line, red line to go from military engine to bicycle bags.
1: Yeah, <laughs> what were they thinking in the company? It was like. I don't know. I don't know. How do you get from what, from that to that? There's not, that's not point A to point B. That's
0: well, one. I mean, probably probably they were really, really going ham onto the, the cooler. They came back from the camping trip and they were like, okay, guys, stop what you're doing. We're making bags now.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere on the market. Or at least trailers. Yeah, there's, no, there's nothing on the market. We've just been <laughs> camping and there's nothing on the market right now for trailers and bags. Stop what you're doing. Stop the cooling system. Book the military contract. <laughs> I know I know they're paying us a lot, but uh, bike, bike bags it is. Okay. Have you seen any of the original Cannondale bike bags?
0: Yeah, I, I, I will include everything into the show notes, but there is a, a catalogs from uh, 1983, <gasps> and you'll see that they have every kind of possible bag. So with all uh, those new dealers, uh, they then used like the infrastructure to develop and produce more bags. And they even went into camping goods. they started uh, producing backpacks and tents, putting a lot of stuff onto the market. Um, once completely fully immersed into the retail bicycle industry, Todd Patterson, which is like another exceptional designer slash inventor, developed the process of jigging and welding aluminum bicycle frames. And then Kandel become a serious manufacturer of bicycles. That's at that point, uh, Kandel starting making bikes from aluminum, which is already, they already worked with aluminum before because they were making the trailer out of aluminum, right? Hmm. The rest of history um, is, I mean, you know what Cannondale is right mm. now. Cannondale 1 on to being one of the biggest bike manufacturers of our era. When you think about big guys, you think about Cannondale, Trek, uh, I don't know, Canyon probably. So, yeah, it started with bags and uh, a bike trailer made of aluminum. So did Cannondale never
1: make a steel bike at all, ever?
0: That's a good question. I don't know, but I've never seen one. I've, ne-
1: I've never seen one, so I assumed it was always aluminum, but for some reason in my head, they would in my head they would have started with steel. But maybe not because listening to that history now of going from the trailer built by aluminum going to the then bike bags and then working with someone to design a frame, maybe they just went directly for aluminium frames, and that, that that again makes them even more outstanding than what they actually are.
0: Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me because Montgomery Joe was a clever guy and he really put all of his coins onto aluminium is the future and let's make everything out of aluminium mm. and it's lightweight so it's better, blah, blah, blah. Cool. But that was already, I mean, the first aluminium bikes from Candell, was in the late 80s i believe um so that was already kind of late um after what we're going to talk about next you'll see you'll see later guys
1: if you're wondering where the name cannondale comes from well it was taken from the cannondale metro north train station in wilton connecticut but there is another story that says one of the employees peter mears was sent to order the telephone service installation in 1970. When he was asked the name of the business to be listed under, Mayors coined the name while looking at the town's rusty old cannon inscribed Dale and the sign on the Cannon Railway Crossing. That's why there is also a railway in the first canondale logo. It's quite nice.
0: Which is nice. So in the first Candle logo, you can see a railway and... Uh, the the original house ride right? because they're used to make like concrete houses um, and I'll include into show notes um, the 1983 catalog you absolutely gonna see it uh, there is no bikes in it no bikes whatsoever there is bags tents jackets even shoes but no bikes and trailers there's trailers crazy so that sums up the basic history of candel and well you know the rest of candel then they went on to do like the cad designs and then started, started filling with carbon and i mean the history of candel is huge we're not going to do it all today but then we're going to look the other side yeah. of the same coin interesting klein yeah. and klein has a much simpler story I hope you all, all of you guys know Klein, it's an awesome brand. I mean, it was an awesome brand, it was awesome paint schemes. And yeah, I'm I'm glad to to introduce that brand to you guys, if you don't know it. So Gary Klein uh, attended the University of California at Davis before transferring to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You all know it, it's called MIT. During the independent activities period in 1973, a group of students, including Klein, worked together under Professor Buckley to produce an aluminum frame. After analyzing a number of contemporary steel frames and and examining ones um, that had broken in use, right, they were able to determine the stress places onto a bicycle frame. So, at that point, they were faced with... Um, a limited available type of aluminium alloy tubing, right? So the cho- the students choose to construct frames from sixty sixty one aluminium tubing. We all know that tubing, right?
1: That's crazy, right? This is this is nineteen seventy three,
0: yeah. And they chose six
1: zero six one aluminium tubing for the first prototypes of an aluminium fra- bicycle frames to be made. They chose 6061. Uh,
0: Yeah, and you can find that aluminium still today, right, And and into bikes. My
1: bikes, all of my bikes are 6061. Um. (laughs) This is
0: crazy. Well, yeah, to sum it up, Gary Klein is just one guy at the MIT, and he is doing kind of a group project, and they have to build an aluminium frame. Yeah. And it's... It's, they are pioneers. Aluminium frame has, I mean, I'm not going to say there's never been one before because you will probably never know that. But there never been one recorded recorded, before, like, you know, like into a paper or something. Yeah.
1: So we're talking about the first ever, the first ever designs and builds of an aluminium frame. And it just shows you how MIT are so advanced that still today... From 1973 to 2021, we're still making aluminium frames with the same tubing and of a similar design. That's insane.
0: Yeah. Just to give you like a, a really, really small idea, MIT, right now, have a nuclear facility just for them. Just for MIT. Hmm. So that's how MIT is pushing their student far into, oh yeah, just go discover new stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, I love it. I, I love this. I love this episode. <laughs> it's fascinating. Okay, moving on. Um, after graduating from MIT in 1974 with a degree in chemical engineering, Klein started in 1975 a business project with three other people and built a limited run of aluminium frames bikes at the MIT Innovation Center using a $20,000 grant provided by Amity and 1,000 of capital from each partner, so 23,000 total. The prototypes with larger diameter tubes and thinner walls than they were produced in 1973 were displayed at the International Cycle Show in New York in February 1975. 1977 just so 2 years later, he patented the use of large diameter aluminum tubes to increase stiffness, and in 1980, he moved to San Jose, California to Chehalis, Washington to start a production run of road bikes.
0: So yeah, that's where Klein finally started actually producing bikes. And while Klein's use of aluminium for bicycle frames was not entirely novel, his usage of large diameter tubes made him... Uh, able to make bicycle that weighed around 15% less than other conventional models. So at that point he was not the only one mm. making aluminum frames in the industry, right? But he was the only one using those really large diameter tubings. Uh, you can see aluminum frames from that era. Um, they, it, it, it was a French brand but there was aluminum tubing and aluminum lugs and they were just basically jammed together those really thin tubing and today finding one of those frames without a crack is actually a challenge mm. I think it was called Allen um I'll try I'll try to find an example and put it in the show notes but yeah so he was the only one using those really really um oversized tubing mm. Then later, in 1995, a Trek bought Klein, um, and to everyone's regret, Klein finally disappeared in 2008. Very sad. Klein was a precursor in many domains. For example, they held a patent for an improved method of routing cables through the frame, Uh, That reduced an aerodynamic drag and stress of the frame. I mean, Gary was a really, really clever dude. And as we all know, Klein bikes are also famous for their paintwork. If you go on the internet, you type Klein. uh, And you'll see like all the different paints and how amazing they are. And they offered like a really, really large number of custom colors and patterns. The paint used was Durathane the non-metallic paint i hope i'm saying that right that cost up to eighteen hundred dollars per gallon of paint that's crazy expensive paint yeah yeah it is
1: how could they afford to do that
0: <laughs> well Klein bikes were really really expensive uh. i can only assume that they were using uh as little paint as they could um and a really really solid varnish on top but yeah all the all the Klein paints are so beautiful so mm. so nice and the you know the new mesh still um uh is influenced uh one of the color the one they made uh with glue log is inspired by mm. old Klein's paint job sick that's good so now let's go back to 1974. So like we said before, in 1974, Professor Sean Buckley was running an MIT course, independent activity periods. And in that course you could find, so Mark Rosenbaum, Bill Shook, Harriet Fell and our boy Gary Klein. So the, had to produce their own bicycle frame out of aluminium right mark rosenbaum so mark set out to create a bike that could give a rider an acceleration advantage by being ultra light without sacrificing stiffness and that bike is really important that bike in that course kind of started everything
1: Everyone made a track bike in that course, and we're going to talk about a few of them. You'll see how they played an important role later. Note that these might be the first ever recorded aluminium bicycles that were all made as track bikes. Mega. Mark had a few (laughs) guidelines to create. (laughs) It is mega. They're the first aluminium track bikes ever. It is mega. I'm loving this. It's insane. It was just an MIT project that they were like, right, we need to make one that's faster for acceleration, lighter, and doesn't sacrifice any stiffness. Boom, let's make the best track. And they've revolutionized the way track bikes, aluminium track bikes are made. It's crazy. Um, Mark also had a few guidelines to create the ultimate track bike. Use larger diameter tubing because the larger the tubing, the stronger it gets even by having really thin walls. At the same time, steel tubes are already down to 0.020 of an inch or 0.025 of an inch, and they would just get bent, crack or destroyed by any stress applied to them if, if they were made any thinner. Sacrifice adjustability, because adjustability features add weight. Use sealed precision bearings, higher quality and lighter. Use alloys. Mark settled for 6061 T6 aluminum, where welding was needed, and used 2024 T4 aluminum and titanium in other places.
0: So that's the four points um, they were working on, right? Yeah. So larger diameter tubing, uh, sacrifice adjustability, use sealed precision bearings, and use alloys. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, at the time, the lightest bikes... um, ever made was for Eddie Merckx in 1971, so two years earlier. Uh, the one he rode uh, for his hour record. And that bike only weighed six kilos. Uh, we had like an entire episode dedicated to the hour record. You should listen to it. It's really good. But in the end, Mark created an absolute monster of a track bike. Only weighing 5.5 kilos, so half of a kilo less, in 1974 so three years later and i'll put a picture in the show notes but that bike is insane it's
1: impressive very impressive
0: oh yeah it's super fucking insane that thing
1: looks like it would ride so good (laughs) today
0: yeah true (laughs) i mean it's the you know it's one of the first ever aluminium bikes uh ever made And it has that kind of geometry and features people would kill for that kind of piece of history. It had like many features that makes it so unique. First, and remember it is 1974, it has a freaking press fit bottom bracket out of everything. Titanium axle for hubs and pedals and a saddle that was integrated to the frame with absolutely no adjustment possible. So, I'll also put a picture of the saddle and you'll see that it is just a tube with a saddle on top and you can't move it. It's just, it's there and it's there forever. And finally, uh, the handlebar was directly attached to the fork crown. So really low pro style. Today, if you want to see that bike, you can find it at the MIT Museum. And so now you understand that the level of the students at the MIT was insane, like proper crazy.
1: I feel like they could have, like, made the saddle a little bit better.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, it's just a piece of leather resting on top of a bunch of tubes.
1: It's just two tubes, like one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. If it works, it works. I guess, I
1: guess. But the rest of the bike looks super neat.
0: Yeah. I do believe that the fork is in still, though. Yeah. Not okay. sure, but I think so. Yeah. But the brake caliper behind, like between the fork and down tube. Oh, such a fixed gear move.
1: Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Amazing looking bike. You can, I need to check this out. Um. Yep. Next up, we have, we have Harriet and Gary's aluminium track bike. Both made in the same idea, but with less extreme. Gary using the absolute biggest available tubing for his frame. When the frame comes back from welding, Mark laid them on their side and was standing, bouncing in the seat stairs. It was so light and solid. The project was a huge success. And then you can see a picture of, I believe that's Harriet's or that's Klein's, because it has Klein written on it. The top picture...
0: So the top one is Klein's, yeah. and the one with the person on it is Harriets. It is Harriet's yeah. Um, and I'll put more pictures in the show notes so you guys can can see all of those. But yeah, Klein's bike is so neat. Klein's bike looks it is
1: so clean. <sighs> the dropouts are the same as the Cannondale almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like it could be a Cannondale. You can see where the everything has been inspired from this. This is crazy, yeah. Um, We also have a nice picture of Harriet on a bike. All the pictures are in black and white and super vintage, so it's really nice to check out if you have time. Um, Just after finishing the frame, Harriet moved to France to continue her career in mathematics. In September 1976, unable to extend her leave of absence for another year, she returned to Northeastern University. As she was determined to move back to France, she left her frame a large bag of books and clothes and a pile of tubular tires in a friend's cellar she didn't come back to she didn't come back to France till 1989 13 years later with her husband
0: and their kids so one of the most priceless yeah, bike yeah. in history was stored 13 years into a miserable cellar yeah. in France yeah and she only came back thirteen years later to pick it up with her husband. Do you know the name of her husband? No. Well, I I had to read an article that explained that story to then explain it to you guys, and I read the article on Sheldon's Brown website because it's such a reference, right? Well, Sheldon Brown was her husband.
1: No way. The
0: guy that knows so much about bikes, is literally married to the woman that produced one of the first aluminum track bikes ever. Mega twist! (laughs) Yeah, mega twist. (laughs) Shaolin Ren is an absolute legend for all of us. Uh, I learned so much onto his website, and I'm sure you guys did too. Uh, And then, of course, 13 years later, the tubulars were hard as a rock and completely unusable. But the frame, the frame met another fate. If you want to see it, there's a video of Harlot presenting the 1974 project at the Cycle History Conference in 2016. I think it's a 40 minutes video. Um, Yeah, it's in, like it kind of recap the story of how they went through choosing the tubing and then um, what, jigging the frames and then um, asking people that actually knew how to weld aluminum to weld everything together, like it's an interesting video.
1: Sick. Um, yeah, Sheldon Brown was when I first started riding fixed gear and I needed to figure out gear ratios and skid patches, and it was like 2008. There wasn't much else online, and and Sheldon Brown was the main website for everything. It's incredible that him and Harriet were married yeah. together. What the fuck? That's, that's It makes a lot of sense that he would be married to someone <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, true, but, true. But the fact that this entire uh, history of, canon, of, of the track bike and what we're talking about today also leads and interlinks into someone like Sheldon Brown. It's cool. It's really cool. I love it.
0: It would have been funnier if he was married to Gary Klein, though. <laughs>
1: oh. That's what I thought it was. (laughs) If Sheldon was married to Gary Klein, (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's jump nine years later. In 1983, Cannondale manufactured its first aluminium bike, but Gary Klein had issued patents on aluminium bike frames and sued Cannondale for the patent infringement. Even Schwinn was already making larger diameter aluminium frames and paid Klein's license fees. But Cannondale claimed that Klein was not entitled to his patents because the real design came from Mark Rosenbaum's thesis and the 1974 aluminium bike project. Mark was then involved in the Cannondale Klein case and gave a six hour videotape deposition. This is interesting. He decided to hide his bike in a friend's barn so it wouldn't be supponed for the case. He was afraid that he would lose the bicycle for years and potentially never get it back.
0: So the guy literally went out of his way to hide his prototype into a friend's barn so the lawyers couldn't touch it.
1: It would have been taken by the case as evidence. I, I guess this case was huge. Oh, yeah. I guess, Gary, I guess Klein was really, really going for it and there must have been a huge case going on for many years at this point crazy
0: and i mean it is the 80s yeah you know so lawyers are not lawyers like today lawyers will directly go to your house and search your place yeah
1: super interesting yeah uh
0: in the end canada lawyers really wanted a frame that was built before clients won for the case right so they contacted sean buckley um the teacher at the mit right um, and Sean told the lawyer that there were five strong frames produced in the project. The lawyer called Harriet and asked if he could use her frame, and she said yes, but it's in the friend's cellar in France. That guy went all the way to France, visited her friend, and brought the frame back in America for the trial. <laughs> what the fuck? That's crazy also here in the show notes um harriet's frame having i think the best ever sticker which is uh a sticker that said defendant exhibit and then the date and then the number of the case (laughs) that is that is cool like your frame was part of a trial yeah please they also brought another large diameter aluminum frame made in that project, right? And that was built by Bill Shook, so one of the students in the project in nineteen seventy four. Do you know who's Bill Shook is now? No. He was the founder of. Uh, he was the founder and engineer of American Classic, wow.
1: the Wills. Wow! Well, yeah, <laughs> crazy.
0: It's all tiding together. Yeah,
1: that's crazy. <laughs> Both of the frames predated Klein's production of oversized tubings, uh, oversized tubing frames, and Cannondale successfully argued that Klein's patent was null and void due to the prior art. You can't patent something that's already in existence and known publicly. Interesting.
0: So Klein's patent discovery document has reference. Mark's bikes and thesis numerous times. Mm. And it had taken Klein's almost eight years to be granted the patent. But essentially, Cannondale asked, why is Klein's bike different from Mark's frame? Mm. It is not, okay, so your patent is no.
1: So in summary, there is one Klein track bike on this earth And that's exciting. And just imagine for a few seconds if Cannondale didn't win the case. The Cannondale track would have never existed like we know today. Add to that the fact that after the trial, Cannondale and Klein were in constant war for the best aluminium and best tubing, which led to numerous innovations for aluminium bikes.
0: Boom! And this is where our story ends, guys. This is the story of... Two giants fighting over aluminum and oversized tubing. If he
1: hadn't have tried to make the patent, if he hadn't tried to make uh, it his thing, the oversized tubing, Canyon wouldn't, uh, Cannondale wouldn't have tried to do it. But also because they fought it, yeah. So there would have never been a Cannondale track or the style of Cannondale, if, he had, if Klein had won. But also, because Cannondale did win, the then competition of Klein and Cannondale over many years, up until 2008, when he was bought out, I guess, were always competing against each other. So they're always pushing each other to do better and, and be like, constant, like yeah, constant war battle. Like, we need to do something better. We need to make it lighter. We need to make it stiffer. And that led to the, the innovations of the aluminium bikes that we see today, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, that's nuts. And just imagine if, for a second, if Klein actually successfully had the patent, and a patent is worth like ten years or uh, fifteen years, meaning that they wouldn't have been that much oversized aluminium tubing frames uh, out there, like nowhere. Yeah, you know. And uh, there is this, but e- so either they were just not existing, or either they were, uh, they had to pay clients mm. a fee, meaning that clients would have way more money, and clients would still be something today. The fact that he couldn't have the pat the patent, like, change his story and how oversized aluminum frames exist as today.
1: The the also the mind blowing thing is how Klein has impacted, um, bikes in the world. Yeah, from when he from that moment from that uh, that project that they had at MIT, they literally redefined and changed everything to do with aluminium bikes. Uh, of starting the 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 world with aluminium bikes, it's massive. It's a massive bit of history that.
0: And I found really interesting that you know, the, uh, this is how it started. And coming back on the candle track, so I think the first candle track is what um, nineteen ninety two, I believe, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was ten years after the trial. I mean, no, a little, little bit less than ten years because. Uh, I do guess that the trial didn't last just only a year. It was probably longer than that.
1: No, I think it. I think but, it would have been much longer. I think it would have been yeah, three to four years or something, six years maybe. Yeah, It would have been ongoing.
0: But but then like Cannondale, they released like the the two point eight, which is their you know like aluminium road bike, and then they had the three point and then they had the Cannondale track based on the three point oh. All, all of those bikes could have never been something if they didn't win um, that trial It's sad for Klein
1: or if Klein hadn't have patented it because it was 1976 when he first built when 1974 to 1976 Harriet and Klein and Mark all built their aluminium tracks bikes. Klein then in 19 what was it 78 started the company with three people and patented then. If he hadn't have patented that, we might have seen the development of aluminium oversized tubing become much quicker.
0: Yeah, he probably.
1: Might have, he might have slowed it down. He slowed it down in a good way in terms of built the competition and made everyone want to push and realize how good it was and, and the potential it had. So it's yeah, it's super interesting.
0: Yeah, and also the, the mere fact that uh, there is... Out there, one Cannondale, oh sorry, one Klein track bike. It is so awesome. Because when I, okay, when I had like my little fascination, like everyone on the Cannondale track, you know, I was talking with people, blah, blah. At some point, people told me like, oh yeah, Cannondale, at the time they were always at war with Klein. And I was like, what the fuck is Klein? I don't know Klein starting to research a little bit about Klein. And they make like all those super cool mountain bikes uh, with crazy color schemes. And they also they were also making the Quantum, which is a road bike. And like, oh, well, they for sure had made a track bike, right? No track bike. No track bike ever from Klein. And I was like, that's so sad. Because I think if at some point Klein made... Track back, it would have been so collectible, like way more than the Candle track. Just imagine something similar to the Candle track, but so much more rare. So, and uh, also with a crazy color scheme oh my god, it would have been a hit!
1: yeah it would be incredible if if there was a few Kleins around there would be I know this is the original one but if there was a few that Klein actually produced yeah they'd be super poor people would do anything to get them. I still can't believe how much Klein's first bike looks. Uh, you can see the evolution of everything from it. it's beautiful. it's a really nice design.
0: yeah you you can also see that they made mistakes uh from aluminium for example the integrated uh seat clamp yeah you know nobody would do that right now on an aluminium frame because everybody know it's gonna crack um but yeah that first klein frame it's so nice and yeah yeah, you can see that the candle track really went from 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 there and even that steel fork it looks so good yeah it looks really good really good If anyone out there has all the pictures of that bike, because that's that's the only picture I could find, Um, uh, send me or share it on the Discord, um, whatever you want. But man, that is a cool looking bike. And I I mean, it's a black and white picture, but I can't assume it is just raw aluminum. There's no paint on it. Um, And oh God, it's really cool. Yeah. I don't know where it is right now. It must be like in a Trek museum or something.
1: And it looks like my size. <laughs> <laughs> just saying.
0: Good morning, Mr. Trek. Um, I've seen a bike. <laughs> it looks like my size. was wondering if I could buy that. You know, just casual.
1: I. Still, I it still blows my mind that Harriet just left his in her friend's uh, cellar in France and was just like, yeah, well, I'll pick that up at some point. <laughs> It's cool.
0: This is when you see that people from MIT are on a different level. Yeah. You know, oh, I just make something completely uh, new and rev- revolutionary. I'm just gonna let it in the friend's cellar. Because <laughs> it. yeah. yeah. And uh, I really wonder if there is other uh, like uh, you know like cases like that or stories. Underground stories um, that we don't know about some bikes because I also guess that if Sheldon wasn't married to Harriet, that story would have never been available to the public mm. ever. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. And the last thing I, I, I wanted to add, um, I've I've looked at so I searched online a lot for those research. And I've seen another case of of a lawyer, there was a, a lawyer with a blog, which is interesting. <laughs> and on his blog, he was like, oh, my first big case, like, okay. Um, and apparently that was uh, a couple of really rich, uh, let's say 50 years old. And they had everything new at the time in terms of bikes. And everything was hanging into a wall. They had like 30 bikes. Um, and they bought um, the last, I mean, the last at the time. And one of the first for us, Aluminium candle frame, road frame. And the guy was a fairly tall guy, so he had to order like a 61. It was till the 80s. And I guess Aluminium was not 100% uh you know like understood at the time and so the guy was riding it and ha- and then uh to avoid a car he just made a hard left and hit a curb and crashed pretty hard. and he had some brain injuries. Sure. So they had like an entire case around that and the fact that uh the candle bike broke and that was the candle was responsible for that guy's injuries, mm-hmm. which, you know, probably not because there was no riding in helmet. And um, if you crash an aluminium bike into a curb pretty hard, there's no doubt that it's just going to crumble, you know, especially in the 80s. And the lawyer told me that to understand all the physics and dynamics around aluminium, uh he had um a really long and deep conversation with Klein. So Klein helped that lawyer defend Cannondale in a case. Mm. Wow. That, that that I mean it's it's weird, right? How things <laughs> goes, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So, yeah. Any anything you'd like to add before we wrap up this episode no i'm
1: i'm really really fascinated i didn't know so much about Klein bikes i didn't realize the history um i'm fascinated by the whole thing i hope everyone liked it and uh yeah it's good good bit of history
0: all right guys um i guess this is it for this episode this is all we have time for today um it's a little bit on the short side, but it's a good story. I hope everyone liked it. I put a lot of research into that, and yeah, it was it was fun to, to learn about all that history. As usual, everything we discussed today will be in the show notes on the blog, Slispinside.com. I really recommend you go there to find all the pictures and the articles and the reference I got. Uh, so yeah, definitely check that out, and I need to stop saying definitely a lot. <laughs> You can find us on our Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes or with our Instagram account at Slowspin Society and at currency.co. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show or by giving us a good review on the platform of your choice. If you get value out of the show, why not considering putting value back in either by supporting us on Apple Podcasts with a new subscription program or by visiting patreon.com slash Podcast to join the community we're pledging at any level we're going to access to the pre and after show, which is around 40 minutes of extra content per week. I can feel I'm saying that faster and faster every time. <laughs> we, <laughs> we are now at 25 Patreons. Thank you so much for your support. The music for the show is Lovely Swindler by Amaria, and the illustration is by me. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, It's been a blast doing this episode with Rob. And uh, we hope to see you guys next week. Have a good one. See you next Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.